Hi, welcome to the third episode of Tea with Mama Cash, because feminist activism works, with your hosts Zora Musa and Happy Mwende Kinyili. Hi, I'm Zora. I'm the executive director at Mama Cash, and I'm so excited because I actually managed to grow some vegetables from seed this year. And I'm happy. I'm the director of programs at Mama Cash, and I'm dreaming of laying on a beach for like three days. I don't know when that will happen. Happy, I spend a lot of my time talking about feminism, thinking about feminism, talking hopefully with, but sometimes at people about feminism and encouraging people to become feminists, identify as feminists, do feminist work, right? Like be a feminist, be a feminist. Why aren't you a feminist? I mean, not really, but a little bit like that. And so what happens when everybody starts saying that they're a feminist and they're, they're proud of it, it's really mm-hmm. popular, we're hearing it a lot right now. We're, we're seeing some unlikely, perhaps, people identify with the word, and we're seeing it in places where we weren't expecting to see it. And is that good? Is that not good? Am I hugely persuasive, or is this a disaster? <laughs> I think your job is done, Zora. You can retire. Everybody's a feminist. Good job. Good job. Um, <laughs> is it a good thing? Disclaimer, I think I said this disclaimer in the first episode. It comes out again. I am a deeply pessimistic human being. Okay, maybe not about some things, not about all things. And this one makes my pessimism show up because I, a lot of the people who are calling themselves feminist, I think miss the point that feminism isn't just, you don't just say it and voila, you're a feminist. It means you have to do things in a certain way. You have to make choices in a certain way. You have to fundamentally be about shifting power. And I don't know, some people are calling themselves feminists. What I see, I mean, I'm not with them 24 hours a day, but what I see isn't about shifting power. It's about getting on the latest bandwagon. And that makes me go like, oh, crap, we need to figure something else out as those who are doing the feminist work. So this episode, we're talking about pop feminism, what we've called pop feminism. And we were just joking a minute ago about not actually knowing what we mean by that term formally, not having a definition. But I think what we want to talk about this week is the fact that it is becoming popular and possibly populist. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean for our movements? And when I was joking about me going around telling everyone to be a feminist and now a bunch of people are being feminists, it's not that, right? That's, That's not what's happening. It's that certain people have caught on to it. And those of us who have been in movements and who are who are supporting movement building have been asking for feminism as an ideology to be coming forward. Not that everyone just goes around calling themselves a feminist like a label. So what does it what does it mean for us that it's becoming popular and possibly populist? Especially when you think of one of the tactics we use to gain to build the movement is popular education um and i actually think that's something we need to get sharp at and get deeper in because it's in spaces of popular education for example or in work of cultural production that we are putting forward the ideas the ideology the the practice even of feminism and so as a movement for us to respond to this rise in popular feminism is how do we get deeper in sharing the thought, the practice, the breadth of it and the depth of feminist ideology with the broader world. 
And what do you think about the idea that it's popular in some places? Mm -hmm. So where we see it gaining currency is in global north mainstream Anglo media, Mm -hmm. Hollywood, US-oriented media production, possibly UK-oriented media production. It's not like it's popular everywhere. It's still hugely dangerous in many places to be talking about women's rights, for example. Mm -hmm. I think that's a real thing. And as more and more feminists in the spaces you and I spend time in are talking about pop feminism, I think it's recognizing that this rise in popular feminism is coming from a certain demographic. What does it then mean for the rest of the world, as complicated as the work of cultural production is, will respond to that, right? So I hear some autocrats in some parts of the world who would in no other space be saying women's rights are a real thing, will be like, oh, but feminism is a thing I can get behind. That makes no sense. Um, But it's because... You know, Justin Trudeau is a feminist and I want to have tea with Justin Trudeau, so I'll call myself a feminist. Um, So I think it's something it's for us as a movement also to figure out what tactics are we using in what spaces and how does that inform the conversations we want to be getting in around feminism in a global sphere. It's not just this one iteration of it's in the north and they're feminists over there. So like we've been saying, everybody's talking about feminism or Some parts of the world are talking about feminism and it's popular and it's out there. You know, Beyonce is a feminist. But there's other parts of the world where feminism, women's rights, um, girls' rights puts people at real risk. Yeah, actually, I think increasingly many of our grantee partners like Mama Cash ask to be anonymous because they cannot be associated with either A, feminist work, B, women's rights work, C, work from partners in the global north because it puts them at real risk in their contexts. And this biggest notion that, you know, the world is increasingly turning to feminism again centers, what is the word? American <laughs> Europe and the experience and their context of what's happening there and extrapolating it to the rest of the world, which puts at real risk um, people in other contexts and in other parts of the world. I was thinking of something similar that, It feels like there's parallel things happening where at a level of popular discourse in certain particular mainstream presses that we've mentioned, feminism is current Um, and there's headlines and stories and space to use the word and to talk about some of the agenda, parts of the agenda at least, that are not seen as, as controversial or are sanitized enough that can be consumed on those platforms and at the same time there is a very serious global conflict going on around women's rights girls rights trans people's rights intersex people's rights and we see that playing out also in some of those same locations so for example UN headquarters is located in New York And the annual conference on women's rights that that happens in March every year called the Commission on the Status of Women, CSW, that space has become extremely hostile to agreements we already had about women's rights globally. And feminists have been having to fight really hard in the last few years to just maintain the existing agreements that all governments, well, most governments had signed up to, that these were kind of basic rights for women that everyone was on board with. And we were talking about how to how to make it happen, how to bring it to life, not 
having already accepted that those were rights. And what we're seeing now in that space, every March, there's two weeks of debate about this between governments. We're seeing that we're having to spend a lot of time actually just kind of reaffirming the rights, not talking about how will we make them a reality for all women everywhere, but actually having to renegotiate that, no, no, these really still are the rights that we we stand for. This is in New York, where the debate is happening. It's a global debate, but it's happening in the country where at the same time we're receiving all these messages about feminism, popular feminism. Mm-hmm. And this for me is the lived example of ideas of how hegemonic or hegemonies absorb ideas, ideology, repackage them and pop them out as ineffective ideologies, right? So the greater hegemony of capitalist, white supremacy, patriarchal, you can go on and on, I think has taken on. Um, it's like, okay, so feminism is a force to contend with. We'll absorb it, repackage it and send it out as pop feminism where it actually doesn't do anything. And it also creates a distraction so that people we're all busy scrambling trying to respond to what pop feminism is asking us to do and not in those sites of struggle where we're losing ground that we've already won and we have to refight battles that we'd fought many years back. And then the other thing that I thought of as you're talking was at the same time, not only the negotiation, but the very access into the tables or the spaces where we're able to have these conversations is getting taken away. So in so many parts of the world, um, the place for activism, for direct action, for um, advocacy, to be in conversations with whatever hegemonic power is at play, be it your governments, be it corporations, is getting taken away. And because of that, um, for example, at CSW, fewer and fewer women are actually able to get into the space. And yeah, and then at the same time, we're saying, yeah, there's pop feminism and it's rising. And yeah, it just makes our work that much more complicated. But something to contend with and what do you think about the idea that one way to think about pop feminism perhaps is that it's it's that right it's a the latest way that some forms of feminism can actually be diluted and undermined by commercializing them by making them light right feminism light what we talked about in the first podcast episode what do you think about that versus the idea that maybe pop feminism, if we're thinking about it as popular feminism, is actually a response to enormous backlash right now around the world. And many women coming together and saying, no, no, we're going to put ourselves in front of this and we're going to be part of this. And I ask that because a couple of years ago, we saw the women's marches around the world. And those marches actually involved many, many, many more kinds of people than had otherwise been engaging in feminist movements, for instance. Very different kinds of people showing up to those marches. Not totally different, of course, but Mm -hmm. definitely people who otherwise had never gone to a feminist protest, march thing, came out for that because they just felt there were certain things being said and done. This is again, mostly Global North, that were beyond the pale, right? They were just, no, this is too far, we don't accept. And that's why they came out. I have two thoughts, two conflicting thoughts. On the one hand, I think that, yes, there's more people who are out, who are are standing, physically standing, um, physically presenting themselves to say, I'm... I'm holding a line or I'm pushing back against whatever regress is trying to take space that has been worn for me and my people. And that matters. Then I think about what happens the next day. 
what happens the next day is a lot of these people then go back to the everyday. And I don't think that that one event is sufficient to create the process that we need to help us shift um, or even continue to hold the line against the backlash that we're facing. And I'd be interested in thinking through how, as a global movement, we can move from the event to the process. I think of this, for example, when the revolutions were happening in Africa and in West Asia, right? So the revolution happened, it was an event, it was an important, it was beautiful, it was strong. And then what happened the next day? Some of the revolutions, there was months of it. What happens after? Where is that space? And how are we ensuring that this event is part of a process and is not just that one event? And all the people who are showing up for that event are also part of that process. That makes sense to me. What comes to mind is thinking about how social movements have made change in the past. And I think about the, the suffrage movement, for example, the, the effort to get women the right to vote. I think about the abolitionist movement that ended the transatlantic slave trade. And those things took time, right? The abolition movement, for example, took 500 years officially, give or take. And we still deal with the aftermath of that, but this is the formal ending of the transatlantic slave trade. It took 500 years of struggle. And in different moments of that, there would have been points where we might have seen what we see now, which is a kind of a groundswell because it's appearing in the mainstream means of propaganda or the mainstream discourses or whatever whatever was happening at that time, where people got information from in those times. And they were part of a larger process. But it's not that every single person who was activated for that event didn't necessarily go to every next event, but it is still part of a process in that it's moving the needle on the dial a bit. And it's, I'm using a whole bunch of mixed metaphors here, but, you know, moving the goalposts and shifting the terrain. And it, it's, it marks a cultural shift in some way, even if we're still struggling to find ways to, okay, how do we get that mass into the movement and have them be part of movement building? But it's still, the frame is shifted. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I think that even the fact that the, women's marches happened and happened in so many sites around the world means something. And we, I mean, you and I are talking about it and how many years ago did it happen? And I think that the thing that I, when I think of the next day and who shows up, I often wonder how are we making sure that it's not only the public spaces that all these shifts are happening, but also in the private or in the everydayness and as well also in systemic space, how are we shifting things systemically? And I think if we have enough people who will show up to the event today and then tomorrow be, for example, analyzing what are the ways in which I have privilege and I'm going to be sure to use the privilege that I have to shift power, shift resources, because then I'm moving from the event yesterday and I'm now part of the process. And if we can have more people who before the event weren't necessarily in that space and after the event because of the experience of it are now collectively working with us to be shifting resources, I feel like, yeah, we're in that and we're we're making progress towards that end goal or that vision of liberation that we are struggling towards. I think that's a good point. And I think also it goes with what we were talking about in terms of where are these conversations happening? So where they're happening in, say, Global North or particular locations in the Global North. And those are locuses of power. And so if those shifts are happening there, okay, what does it actually mean Mm -hmm. for movements around the world and for the future we're working towards as, as feminists? 
And I also, I was just thinking about what we were talking about earlier, where in other locations, it always was and is also now becoming so dangerous to be working on some of these agendas and these issues and to call yourself a feminist in those situations. I mean, it would, it would just, it would be absurd, right? You just wouldn't do it. It's, mm-hmm. it's yeah, nonsensical to even be talking about the content of it, never mind using a label like that. And I guess what I'm wondering a bit there is how do we build those bridges? Because part of me thinks it's great that there is some activation in some of these countries in the global north because there was a bit of a lazy fairness, right? And a bit of like, well, we don't have these problems here. You have those problems over there, which just isn't so. So it's great if people can look at the context that they're in and what changes need to be made there so that we do eradicate, dismantle the patriarchy and all of it. But I kind of wonder, how do we keep the connections? How do we mm-hmm. keep the solidarity? How do we understand that these are global movements that were part of many different currents with each other and you know, how to relate? Mm-hmm. Maintain the idea of there's a common future or common futures we're working towards. We're in different locations and it manifests differently in different places, but really not take each other for granted or assume that how it is playing out here now is how it is Mm -hmm. for the world or for all women everywhere. Yeah. What you're talking about makes me think of um, the liberation struggles in the 60s in many parts of Africa, some parts of Asia, and the civil rights struggle in the US and the conversations that were happening there with a push to what they're then calling an internationalist perspective of my freedom is tied to your freedom. So we have to get into this together. And I feel when I read back and I hear the stories of those of that moment in history of, unfortunately, the what I get is a lot of men who are sitting around the table talking to each other. But there was that recognition. And truly, there was a lot of travel and coordination. And I think of people like Malcolm X, who traveled so many parts of Africa, um, met with folks in West Asia to be like, I I want to learn from you. And I want to offer what it is that I've learned from my struggles in the US, that we can then together build a stronger movement. And then it makes me think of what role, for example, would Mama Cash have because of the resources we have and the position we have in the world? How can we make sure that there's more of those bridges being built very deliberately, intentionally and continually? How are we making sure, for example, our grantee partners are talking to each other, not just in email, but also in person and not only talking to each other, but talking to the movements that they're part of. Right. So because of the position we're in and the types of groups we fund, we fund very many different social movements. So, for example, how the disability rights activists in conversation, how is the disability rights movement in conversation with the lesbian rights movement and how are they in conversation with the environmental justice movement? Because all those three movements, liberations, are tied with each other and we can play a facilitative role in making sure that happens. I find that really helpful and one thing I, I'm still left wondering about is the reality is that the liberation of some women is going to require the seeding of privilege and power from other mm-hmm. women. And so how do we, how do we have that conversation and w- what's Mom Cash's place in brokering that conversation? That the reason some women are in the situations they're in, struggling with the struggles they're struggling with is entirely related to the situation other women are finding themselves in and taking status and power and privilege from.
cuando me preguntas que qué te pones Te digo que no me importa, pero no porque no me importa Sino porque de veras respeto lo que tú decidas ponerte No quiero que mis opiniones ni las de nadie decidan Cómo quieres expresar tu identidad porque yo so you've been listening to Te Amo Como Feminista, I Love You Like a Feminist, from the new album, Volva Sonicas, No Translation Needed. This is a creation of two feminist artivist groups that are funded by Mama Cash, Ariana, based in Paraguay, and Las Reinas Chulas, based in Mexico City. Full credits for this colossal album can be found in the podcast notes and on Volva Sonica's SoundCloud page. Did you catch the lyrics? Our Spanish-speaking producers couldn't stop laughing when they had the album. I love you like a feminist. And this is why I don't critique how you dress. And this is why when you ask me what to wear, I say it doesn't matter. But it does. it's not that it doesn't matter. It's that I really respect what you decide. And I don't want my opinions or anyone's opinions to influence how you express your identity. Oh, mouthful. Self-determination. With this song and throughout the album, Ariana and Las Reinas Chulas bring a little irony and a lot of humor to the joys and politics of feminism. Art. And creative expression are a key part of Ariana's and Las Reinas Chulas' activist work. They use art to open up people's minds and people's hearts to the messages that they then try to send to them. So their idea behind it is that if you can touch people, if you can move them, if you can reach them in their, in their hearts, you can help them feel something, then you can also help them think differently because they're more open. Mama Cash believes this too. It's why we fund activists to use art, what we call artivism, to advance their causes around the world. So big thanks to the inspiring creativity and fearlessness of Ariana and Las Reinas Chulas. Find them online at www.ariana.org.py. That's spelled A-I-R-E-A-N-A. And they're also on Twitter at Arianapi. A-I-R-E-A-N-A-P-Y. And Las Reinas Chulas is on lasreinaschulas.com and on Twitter at L-A-S-R-E-I-N-A-S-C-H-U-L-A-S. So what you're saying earlier, Zora, about recognizing that for some women need to give up some of their freedom so that other women can have more freedom makes me think of a conversation I was in last week about that part of the revolution will involve some of us having less freedom so that people can have more freedom. And it was a beautiful conversation with like political family and I was excited about it. But at the same time, then we, we then pushed and said, okay, so all of us who are seated here, we're all privileged, right? So we're a community of black folk who love each other and are in community with each other, but we're also all of us very privileged in very many ways. Then it was like, so what does it mean for us? How, for example, all of us have class privilege who are seated around that table. And thinking particularly about feminists and what we're saying, um, what, what this podcast is about, which is pop feminism, is sometimes I have to say the way feminist ideology or feminist ideas is presented to the world is through a very class privileged lens, right? So you need to have gone to school for X number of years so that you're able to have read Everybody who needs to be have read, you know, you've read Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, you've done some Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, and these are just the black other women. So that then you can be allowed into that feminist cadre. Without it, you can't. Um, what do you think about that? Like, how do you think about even you and I, Zora, where we are positioned in the world, we have immense class privilege. And like we said in the first podcast, you're a professional feminist, you're paid to do our feminist work. 
how does that sit or what do we do with that in a world where we need to have less freedom so that other women, other trans people, other girls around the world can have more freedom? I, I mean, honestly, I struggle with it a lot because I've definitely had those conversations with people where you're trying to talk about the issue and we've read different things, let's put it that way. And I find myself unable sometimes to progress the conversation because some of the most things that I consider basic tenets of feminism are concepts they don't know about. So, for example, intersectionality. I, I use that as a shorthand. I know what I mean. For example, I know what you might think I might mean by that. And we take the conversation in different places because we have a common reference point around what we mean by that. What does it mean to be thinking about multiple forms of oppression working together and systems of oppression and things like this and that we are more than our gender identity. But to have that same conversation with other people, and I think particularly around the issue of migration, for example, where I've been in conversation with people, I find it very hard to not lose my temper, where people don't understand the privilege of having a citizenship status, for example, and the fact that you can have access to so many other things if you have that status. And if you don't have that status, the world breaks for you. Mm -hmm. It's not possible to access healthcare or food or a livelihood because you just, you don't have a particular piece of paper saying you're of that place and how absurd that is, how borders are a social construct. And, you know, our ideas about nationality are just manufactured stories but people are so tied to them and they, they think of it as such a truism that I am this or I am that. When, when you say, where are you from? I am this. No, you're not. Mm -hmm. It's a made up territory that someone gave a name to and put a picture on and made it a flag. I, I struggle with that, how mm -hmm. to have that conversation with people. Mm. Yeah, I, I hear you. I've been in those places where I want to pull my, no, pull somebody else's hair out, <laughs> not mine. And I think... At the same time, I also recognize that a lot of times the people I'm having these conversations when I want to pull my hair out, it's not, we're not disagreeing because I come from a class privilege place. We're disagreeing because we don't have the shared concepts. We don't agree on that, whatever that thing is. And I think that there's something in, in thinking about the the ideology, I don't want to use the word ideology, but I'll use that. Like in thinking about the ideologies that often we come to clash about, sometimes when even the people who we are in conversation with will use the words we want to use and say that's the problem, right? So for example, with intersectionality, the word you're using earlier, which has been used because people don't want to give up their freedom. Like, no, actually intersectionality is too complex or it's too classist or it's too something. Actually, no, I think the, like Kimberly Crenshaw put a word to something that was the lived reality of millions of people for whom not all of them had that class privilege um, to have read Kimberly Crenshaw. But the reality of it, right, so that then the argument of, oh, but that concept is too classist is dismissing the real lives of so many people. I think a lot of times, at least for me, the pieces of different ideologies I hold on to that make most sense is when you see somebody walking that life, right, living that life, then we are putting a word to that, not create a word and then stuff meaning to it. But it's the flip. And I want to have a conversation with that person, like you're saying, who's confused about the borders to say, 
the difference between intersectionality and borders, intersectionality, I feel, came from something that was real and then was named. Borders was, oh, this is this nice idea we want to have and then we'll create it and voila, now you have to stuff meaning into it. And one process, I think, is, yeah, one process works, one process doesn't work for me. And I, yeah, a bit of a rumbling there. Happy, what do you think about where popular education fits into this? So there's a piece where definitely some of the concepts can seem very elitist, like intersectionality, but as you say, come from a lived reality and so aren't inherently elitist. Just the way we might use it becomes that way. Versus popular education, which is a way for people to access everyday knowledge Mm -hmm. about their realities and about how power works. And how can we do more of that so that the terms we use aren't distant from our everyday realities and speak to our truths and allow us to have conversation with each other about where we're going? For me, what becomes important in popular education is not always to walk into the space with, I have the theory, I want us to understand it, but out of lived reality, then even create new words which we could share. Um, So I'm in this space and we create a word for our lived reality, which is then the ideology we are subscribing to. You're in a different context with a different word. And how we have conversation with each other, it starts from the lived experience so that by the time we get to whatever that word is, which is often, like you said, a shorthand, we've built the knowledge, the shared knowledge that comes from it. And I feel sometimes popular education is like, no, I want you all to know what intersectionality means and let's build on that. Let's build that knowledge as opposed to what is my lived experience? What is the thing that I'm struggling with? How does it match the thing you're struggling with? And therefore, what is it that we want to share in common? Thanks so much for joining us. Please find us online at www.mamacash.org and also on social media because we want to hear from you. So please do subscribe, leave a comment or leave a review on SoundCloud, Stitcher or iTunes so we can continue the conversation. And please join us next time where we're going to get real and talk about one of the areas where feminism is failing and can do a lot better, cis privilege and trans exclusion. How can cis women let go of the idea that feminism is only about cis women? That's your hosts, Zora Musa and Happy Mwende Kinyili. Signing, signing off, off until, until the next time. time. <laughs> this podcast was produced by our colleagues Amanda Gickler and Sophia Sewell in collaboration with the wonderful Natalia Trucci. We recorded the episode at Studio Amsterdam with Nick DeWitt, who also did the audio post-production.